Well, I'd remind us as we're kind of coming back in after a couple of weeks hiatus from this series, the central theme of 1 Timothy, which is found in chapter 3, specifically in verse 15, where Paul instructs Timothy that he's writing to him with a very specific purpose in mind, and that is that he instruct or teach the church how to behave, the people of God how to behave in God's household, which he calls the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is God's household. We are part of the family of God, but it's his house, right? It's not our house. It's his house. In your house, you have your own rules. Well, in God's house, he has his own rules, and there's a particular conduct he expects, behavior he expects, from his people. So that's kind of what we have been walking through. Now, one of the challenges that we face when we read, especially here the pastoral epistles, is that it's not really a how to manual. The New Testament is not a how to manual of how the church is to start, how a church is to organize, the particular way the church is to govern itself and do all the things that a church does. You might be surprised to know that, but you can't read the New Testament and walk away with a comprehensive manual on how to get those things happening. But here's what the New Testament does do, and specifically the pastoral epistles. It provides for us a strong case of of how the church must be centered around Christ, centered around his gospel, centered around his word, and led by qualified leaders. This is what we know. This is what we see in his word here. God in his infinite wisdom calls faithful men to organize and structure and assemble God's people into a local church where they can be protected from wolves, right? False teachers and false teachings. So they're protected by sound doctrine as it's preached and proclaimed and heralded, right? Sound teaching, the gospel, the firm foundation, And, right, it's a place where shepherds can care for and nurture the flock of God. Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus contains valuable information towards those ends. And specifically in this area of what kind of leaders there should be. So not really how necessarily all these things happen, but what kind of man, what kind of qualified men ought to be leading the church of Jesus Christ? Who is to be appointed to this this office and function of leadership in the church? And that's what we're going to look at today. Many of you know there are a lot of dysfunctional churches out there. Some of you have been part of those. Some of you have horror stories and been traumatized and have PTSD from some of those churches. Some Some churches have suffered from really bad governance. Some of you have sat under abusive leaders or maybe those who didn't teach sound doctrine, right? All of these things are out there. And, and this letter to Timothy and, and the letter to Titus is so important to understand what is the kind of man that should be leading the people of God to safeguard the flock of God, to provide protection for the flock of God, and to nurture and care for God's people as we would under the leadership of Jesus Christ, the head of our church. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy, the third chapter. We are going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. Hear the words of the living God. 
This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. These are the words of the Lord. Now there's a lot there, and we could spend weeks going through all of these things, but but we're not going to do that. We're going to do this in one shot, okay? So buckle in, right, and and, and pay attention and and listen. Don't be distracted. Uh, Stay focused here. This is an important message, and you might be sitting there thinking, well, this probably doesn't apply to me. I promise you it does. It is important for all of us, important for the local church, okay? Now, Paul starts here with this second of five trustworthy sayings in the pastorals. He's saying, this saying is trustworthy. Well, what saying is that, right? Well, he's saying, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This is the trustworthy saying. Now, that trustworthy saying, that phrase may have been a liturgical element that was used at the time. It could have been a phrase that was part of uh, statements taught to catechize the people. We're, we're not really sure. We don't know. But Paul is trying to highlight something important. We saw this back in one where he said, this saying is trustworthy and of full acceptance, right? People should accept it universally, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, now he's talking about if anyone desires you know, to be an over, aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. So I want to spend a little bit of time on this particular phrase because it is important in helping us understand how leaders in the church are selected. Where do they come from, right? Or at least where they should come from. So let's define this term, office of overseer. That sounds so official. You don't kind of see that on business cards for, for pastors, right? Office of, well, maybe in some places you do, right? Normally you see apostle or bishop, but office of overseer. Well, when we see that term office, we we immediately come to understand that it's talking about a particular role, a, 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 a functional role of some sort. It's a position that has certain uh, function, a certain set of tasks and responsibilities, so when this, this particular functional role is that of overseeing or being an overseer. Well, what does an overseer do? Provides oversight. Duh, right? No. <laughs> well, what does that mean, right? To oversee means to watch over, right? 
to watch over something, to supervise uh, something, to direct. In this case, the office of overseer is the one who watches over the local church, supervises, we could say leads the local church. That's their responsibility. That word uh, overseer in the Greek is the Greek word episcope. Okay, it's where we get our English word bishop from. Okay, uh, when you think about the Episcopal Church, right, that that name comes from here, the Greek word episcope. Right, and that word means position, assignment, or supervision. Now, typically, we think of bishop in the Anglican Church or in Roman Catholicism, and we think of them being over several churches, maybe all the churches in a particular uh, parish or geographical location. But in the New Testament, the bishop or elder, uh, the overseer, was over one church. There may have been a few instances where they may have overseen a couple of churches, but in the context of what we're reading here, it is over one particular church. Now, there is also a synonymous term uh, for overseer, uh, and it's the Greek word presbuteros. Okay? Presbuteros. And that word means elder. Right? Immediately, we, we can hear in that word presbytery. Right? The Presbyterian church, the Presbyterian form of governance is taken from this particular Greek word, which means Elder, in their case, a group or session or a multiplicity of elders, okay? Uh, and presbyteros is the word that Paul uses, not here, but in Titus, when he's giving, once again, the qualifications of elders there. And, and he writes in Titus that Titus is to appoint elders. Not, he doesn't call them overseers there, but he calls them elders in every town as I directed you. You can see that in Titus 1.5. So why these two particular terms? What is the difference between these terms? Well, I want you to see that these words are used interchangeably in Paul's letters and Paul's writing and in the New Testament. They're synonymous terms. They mean different things in their original language here, but Paul is using them interchangeably. I'm going to give you a couple examples of that. First of all, I want you to know that presbyteros which we translate as elder, is a word actually of Jewish origin. It speaks of the elders, like in the Old Testament. The elders were those who led or ruled families and clans and communities. In Exodus 24, we see the appointment of 70 elders whose responsibility was to come alongside Moses and help him. Later on, every synagogue had elders. Okay, the council of the Sanhedrin had 70 elders ruling. Okay, this is a term of Jewish origin. Okay, it speaks of leadership. It speaks of seniority or rank. But the Greek word episcope, which we translate as overseer, is a term of Greek origin. And that term best defines the superintending function a nature of the elders' ministry. This is what they do. So think of it this way. It's kind of a crude way to think of it. But elder would be like the title. The function or the role would be that of overseeing. That's what the elder does. They oversee. All right? uh, but I'm going to throw in one third term in there, and that's the term pastor. Because these words are all synonymous. Pastor, elder, 
overseer. It's the same thing when it comes to the apostolic writing in the New Testament. Let me give you a few examples. Acts 20. Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself. This is the last time he believes he is going to see them. He summons them from Miletus to come to him. Right? He's going to kind of give a farewell address to these beloved elders that were appointed here at the church in Ephesus, right? And so he, he, he summons for the elders, but when he addresses them, he calls them overseers. They are overseers, bishops of the flock of God, Acts 20, 17, and 28. When we come to Peter's writing, in his exhortation to the elders of the church, he calls them shepherds. He's writing to the elders, he's appealing to the elders, but then he calls them shepherds or pastor. He tells them to pastor or shepherd the flock of God, and then he says, exercising oversight. So he calls them shepherds, and he calls them bishops. In other words, bishop the flock of God. Give oversight to the flock of God as good shepherds. In Titus 1, Paul gives instructions for appointing elders, and then he proceeds to call them overseers. So he says, appoint the presbyteros, but here's the qualifications for the episcopate. All right? So I want you to see these terms are synonymous. So kind of as we're going through this, I'll use those terms interchangeably as well. means the same thing. But here's what we can conclude from what we begin to read here in terms of the qualifications for elders, Timothy's, uh, the instructions Timothy receives from Paul, and then uh, the, the exhortations Paul's going to give Titus to appoint elders, is that God intended for his church to have elders, overseers, and pastors. He intended for his church to have spiritual leadership in place. This is not something that emerged centuries after the founding of the New Testament church when there was the rise of the institutional church. Because you'll hear that argument. Oh, there was no leadership in the early church. I don't know where you get that. When you have such clear instruction, clear apostolic teaching. Oh, this was something that came up later with the Catholic Church that with its, with its hierarchy of priests and bishops and cardinals and archbishops and the Pope and all. Nope. Nope, you, you, you cannot say that here. Right here in the foundation of the New Testament Church is instruction for qualified leadership to be in place. In Acts 14.23 here, we have Luke writing here, narrating events that are happening and taking place. And in Acts 14, 23, he's talking about Paul and his ministry team, when they had, listen, appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they had appointed elders, where? Every church. Not some churches, not one church. Every church had Elders, elders in every church. That was the apostolic imperative. To say that a church should not be organized around a leadership structure is ignorant, and it is unbiblical, and it is downright dangerous. Downright dangerous. All right, so how does one become an overseer? How does one who aspires to the office of overseer, like, how does that emerge? 
All right? Well, I'm going to walk you through three steps. Two in this section, and then the third step when we go through the particular qualifications enumerated in this passage. Now, the first step is right there in the beginning. The first step is personal aspiration and desire. If someone wants to become an elder or overseer or pastor in the church, they must personally aspire to that. They must have a personal desire for this kind of ministry. That word aspire in in the Greek means to stretch oneself out. It it carries with the idea of setting one's heart on something. This is not a wrong thing to do. This is actually something that Paul is saying one should do. They should passionately desire to be the overseer of a church. Okay? Now, no one should be appointed to the office of overseer if they don't want to do it. If they have no desire for it. If they don't aspire to it. No congregation should be recruiting people who have no desire to do this noble task. Some of you come from congregational church structures where the the elders are appointed and it's basically on popularity. Who are the influential people in the church? Who are the the wealthy people in the church, right? Who are the most successful business people in the church? Well, those are the ones that people are going to vote on to become elders and give spiritual oversight of the church. That's a dumb way to do it, okay? Notice he says here, One aspires and desires to this noble task. This is not selfish ambition. This is not someone who is power hungry, right? And motivated by the wrong things to want to do this. Because that would be a disqualifying motivation. Because if you want to be an elder because you like being in authority, you don't belong in that position. If you want to be an elder because you like having control over people and you want people to respond to you or there's some some weird neediness that you have in your heart or some insecurity that you need fueled because you're a people pleaser and you want people to like you, you have no business being an elder of a church. Okay? There are a lot of people in leadership positions in churches that have no business being there. They should not be there. They've done a lot of damage. Okay? Now, Peter, uh, exhorting the elders again in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says to exercise their oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Right? So no one should be forced to do this. No one should have their arm twisted to give oversight to be an elder if they don't want to do it. Or they have no desire to do it. No one should be put in this office just because there is a need in the church. How many churches appoint elders because they're like, we've got to have a bunch of elders. That's not a good reason. That, that's not the way to go about that. Right? And again, no pastor should guilt someone into doing this. I've been part of churches where I've seen that happen, where the senior pastor wants a certain individual, right, to, for people to recognize them or for him to say, look who's next to me and look who's along this journey with me here. And it's a man, whole manipulation tactic to get this individual appointed to the office of elder. That is foolish. That is dumb. And that is unbiblical. Paul calls this a noble task. 
It says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Noble means good or beautiful or something that has positive qualities. Why does he call this, this, this office of overseer, this role of overseeing a noble task? Why does he call it that? He calls it that because it is. It is good. It is beautiful. It is something of immense, immensely positive qualities. What is an overseer doing if not caring for the flock of God? Shepherding the people of God. Teaching the people of God. Protecting the flock of God. That is a noble task. Every man should aspire to this task. One should desire it because it's a good thing. So let me ask you men in this room. Do you desire it? Do you aspire to the office of overseer? Now we're going to talk about calling here in a moment. But I think every man, every man should desire it and aspire to it. Especially when we come to these qualifications. And we look at that. Every man should aspire to meet these qualifications. To be qualified for the office of overseer. And if you don't aspire to it and you don't desire it. I want you to ask yourself, why not? Why don't you? Why don't you see this as a noble task? Caring for the people of God, protecting the flock of God, seeing the flock of God grow and be nurtured by qualified leadership. You should aspire to it. It's the first step. The second step, and I'm going to argue logically precedes the first step of this inner aspiration and desire, but I'm going to call it the second step, right? It's, it's the Holy Spirit's calling upon a man to the office of elder. And logically, it's the first step because it's the Holy Spirit that's going to put it in a man's heart uh, and motivate them to desire this noble task. But is the Holy Spirit calling you to this? Notice in Acts twenty twenty eight, in that passage where Paul summons the elders of the church of, of Ephesus to himself, he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which... The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Who made them overseers? The Holy Spirit. Well, did they aspire or did the Holy Spirit call them? Yes. <laughs> okay. So the Holy Spirit signaled them out. The Holy Spirit provoked them, prompted them, stirred them up to desire this noble task. This is the inward call of the Holy Spirit. Right? The third step is what we're going to call the external call. These are the internal calls. The inner aspirations and desires and the inner witness or calling of the Holy Spirit. There's the external call as the third call. And that involves the examination of the individual who both aspires to the noble task and senses the inward call of the Spirit. And that's what these qualifications are about. The qualities have to be recognized in the individual by whom? By the church. By the congregation. These qualities have to be observed. They have to be witnessed. They have to be seen. 
And here is why it is so important that elders come from within the body of believers and not hired from without. When someone is hired to be a pastor of a church and nobody knows them, how on earth can you do what it's asking you to do here? The the role of the church. Okay? I believe elders are appointed by other elders, but this examination process... This is where the church is involved in this here, right? So they need to come from within the body. Now, look, I know there's some cases where that might not be possible. And and at times, then, if there's no one qualified in this role and there is an overwhelming need, I understand why some churches have to do that. I'm not judging them uh, negatively on that, right? But that should not be the rule. That's the exception, okay? Uh, The rule, the preference, the prescribed way is that they emerge from the body, okay? It's the only way this third step is even possible, right? The church needs to be able to take these qualifications and match them up, recognize them in this individual who aspires to the office of overseer and who's a candidate for eldership. They have to be seen, right? They have to be matched to the individual, Okay? And that can only happen when this individual is observed, not for a minute, but for a lengthy period of time. How long? As long as it takes. Right? There's no time frame given to us in Scripture. There's no prescribed thing here. Look again in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you. Where were the elders? Among the flock of God. Because guess what? Elders are also sheep. They're sheep as it concerns the Lord. They're part of the flock of God. But elders that give oversight are among the flock of God. A prospective elder must come from among the sheep. So this is why that's important. Before a man is appointed to the role of elder, he's already been proving himself by leading, teaching, and bearing responsibility in the church. That's why some fly-by-night individual who comes in and says... I'm a pastor. Whoop de doo. <laughs> Sit down. You know, be part of the church, be part of the sheep. And if you're called and you aspire to that, well, we trust that the Holy Spirit will, will raise you up in that time, you know. But, you know, that's just not an automatic thing. And sadly, you know, you go to places. We've had people come here throughout the years, and it's like, I can do this, and I am this, and I, woof. I raised the dead. Wonderful. Sit down. You know, it's, it's all good, you know. Uh, the Lord will take care of his church here. Now, keeping in mind the context of this letter and the groundwork Paul has uh, laid out for conduct in the house of God and what we looked at even just as a few weeks ago, as a reminder, Paul here definitively states that the office of elder overseer, pastor, whatever term you want to use, is for qualified men only. Okay? Not all men, qualified men, right? See how the pool shrinks down, okay? We talked about the role of women in the church in part eight. And ladies, if you were not here uh, for that message, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it. I covered a lot of this. I gave a lot of the biblical foundations for it. So I I just, just humbly ask that you go back and listen to that. I know in this room people come from a a variety of 
church governance structures and, and denominational distinctives where there are female pastors and female apostles and female bishops. And uh, that is an unbiblical pattern that's not taught in Scripture. And our desire is to be faithful to God's word. Even in the areas where we think it's not right, we submit to it. Uh, but the Bible lays out a good case for why this is and why it's a good thing for the church of Jesus Christ. It is not a bad thing. And I know women of God will submit to men who are trying to lead like Jesus. Okay? And it's usually not an issue in a church. It goes bad where that's not the case. And I get that. And I know in many places there have been abusive, bullying, brutish senior pastors who had no business being an elder of a church, but there they are, and they inflict more damage on the sheep, right? God will take care of them, though. I, I firmly believe that, okay? Look at this passage, and you'll see nine times Paul used he and his pronouns. I know in our world, pronouns, anyone can make them up, okay? But not here, right? God's binary, the design of male and female is, is what's the truth. And what you see here is nine times he says he, his, and I refer, he refers to the husband of one wife, right? In the church, we know how to define what a man is, right? It's not, it's not complicated for us, okay? Sadly, right, in the world it is, but here it is not, okay? We, we get what is saying here, okay? Um, so this is affirming that and the reason we submit to the word of God, okay? That eldership, oversight, that aspect of spiritual leadership in the church is for qualified men only. So let's begin to look at that and why this is important. Now, there's a complementary passages I've already mentioned of Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, the first few verses, and read also Acts chapter 20. That uh, address to the elders at Ephesus is so rich. It's one I personally go back to over and over and over again uh, as a pastor uh, to remind myself of what this is all about. Okay, So those passages are some of the clearest passages we see on this aspect of elder and overseer and pastor. Okay, And they give us this comprehensive understanding of all those things. If you take away anything from this message today, brothers and sisters, I want you to see clearly from this particular passage that is talking about the qualifications of an overseer that from the scriptural perspective, from the apostolic perspective, character matters. Character really, really, really matters. It is a big deal, okay? What you see here is, a, is primarily a list of moral and spiritual qualifications. You're not going to see in, the, in this list but one thing that has to do with the duties or the professional attributes uh, of what an elder does, what the overseer does. Okay? One thing out of this whole list, and this list has been divided either 15 things or 17 things, more when we add the other passages of Scripture, a whole lot of qualifications that are moral and spiritual in nature because character is the most important thing. You want to know the job description of an elder? It's a character. The character of a qualified leader is the job description. They have to meet these things. 
Okay, so we're going to go through them here. Now, this list is far from exhaustive. It's not the only things. But these qualifications, we'll call them marks, whatever you want to call them, are ones that every single Christian, male or female, right, men or women, should want other people to recognize in their life. Okay? This is something that every Christian should want to be part of their character. See this as they're formed in Christ, as they're being sanctified, as they're growing in godliness. These qualities are maturing in their life. So it's not just for the qualified leaders, elders of a church. It's for every single person. Men, it's for every single one of you. Whether you aspire to the office of overseer or not. These qualities are about our Christian character. So they matter. They're a big deal. Look what he says here. Therefore, an overseer must be. He didn't say should be. Must be. Four times he's going to use that must, right? These are mandatory. They're not optional. They're not negotiable. These things must be Present, not perfectly, but largely. Must be present here. And a failure in any of these disqualifies a man from the office of overseer. Now, I'm going to break them down into four categories. I want you to see them relationally. First, relational in the relationship to God, relationship with oneself, relationship to family, and relationship with outsiders, okay, or the world or others, however you want to call it. So first, let's look at these qualifications in relation to God. It's just the way I'm going to group them uh, for us here. The first, I believe, is the summary of all of the qualifications, and that is this, this person must be above reproach, okay? Must be above reproach. As far as what can be observed in this man's conduct, no one can bring a substantiated charge against him in respect to any of the things on this list. That's what it means to be above reproach, right? When someone reproaches you, what are they they doing? They're bringing something shameful, right? You've done something shameful, something disgraceful that others can reproach you for can hold a charge against you and levy that against you. But to be above reproach means no one can bring a credible, substantiated charge in regards to any of these things against you. Okay? Paul includes this same thing in his list uh, to Titus in Titus 1.6. He also adds this in Titus. He says that, that the overseer must be upright right, or blameless, holy, A lover of good. These are spiritual qualities. As far as his reputation is concerned, he is walking in holiness before God and others. Before God, before his family, before the church, and before the world. To be above reproach means there's nothing in his public life that brings shame and disgrace to the gospel or to the church. He must be Above reproach. That is a high bar for all of us. Again, men or women. But it's a high standard 
right? And you'll see why this is important in the church of Jesus Christ. How many people there have this levy the charge of hypocrisy against Christians, but not just against Christians, but against like the pastor of the church? I've read countless threads on, on social media posts from people who've been wounded by a pastor and talk about the pastor because the pastor says a lot of things from the pulpit, uh, but maybe it's their kid, you know, or, 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 or someone else in the church says, yeah, but they're not like this at all. They're nasty. They, they sin. They're engaged in these things. How many ministers do we know who have this secret life of, of infidelity? Porn addictions, visiting strippers. We've had pastors just here in town who've been caught putting dollar bills at a strip club, right? You know? To to their shame and disgrace, but it brings reproach on the gospel and on the church of Jesus Christ. This is why important that that, that those who are going to spiritually lead the flock of God, because it's the flock of God. This is not my church. You don't belong to me. You belong to Jesus. So I need to live above reproach. Those who are going to lead here need to live a life above reproach. Must be. It's super important. I'm going to skip, I'm going to skip around here. This is not in order. I'm just grouping him a different way for us to kind of get an understanding. In relation to God, not a new convert. Not a recent convert. Not a new baby Christian. A new baby Christian should not have really no business leading the flock of God. All right? They need to be led themselves, right? How are they going to lead God's people, instruct and teach God's people when they, <clears throat> they are new to the faith? They themselves need to be discipled. That Greek word for new convert means to be newly planted. So think about the imagery of, you know, a young tree, Right? And it's just a sapling, right? It's just a little shoot, right? And a strong wind or someone can step on it and snap it in half. Contrasted to a mature tree. 30, 40, 50, 100 years old, right? Thick, deep-rooted. Has weathered incredible storms and is still standing. Right? That's the imagery I want you to have in mind. And why, why this particular qualification is so important, Right? You do not want someone newly converted that's still young in their faith, hasn't been tested, right? hasn't been tried, hasn't gone through trials of faith, hasn't progressed much in their sanctification to be in a position to give spiritual oversight over God's people. Now, that should be obvious, but it happens a lot. There's a whole host of churches out there that are desperately in need of ministers, so the first kid that comes out of seminary at 22, 23, you know, and they're, they're excited. They want someone who's, who's educated, who, who has their theology intact and, and can possibly lead. Or maybe they're trying to reach a young generation. So the best way to do it is put a young person up there. This is why you have youth pastors that are, you know, 18 years old in some churches. They have no business doing that, Right? But because there's a need, we, we discard these particular qualifications that one should be measured against, and, and here we have it. It's dangerous to do that thing. Now, please hear me and understand this. Just because someone's young doesn't mean they're immature. That's not the point I'm trying to make. I know a lot of young men who are much more mature than guys three, four times their age. 
spiritually mature, okay? Right? But also, having a seminary degree does not equal spiritual maturity, okay? None of those things can bear out that particular way. Too many young men go into ministry are placed in positions as elders, and the stats bear this out. The first sign of adversity, trial, trouble in the church, they're bolting. They're gone. They bail. Okay? Ministry, if you are not spiritually mature, will eat you up, chew you up, and spit you out, and leave you reeling in your faith. It's not that it's not just for the faint of heart. It's, it's not for the spiritually immature. Because you will go through stuff. Not only, not only do you go through stuff, but you also get to learn about the stuff of other people. And if you're not spiritually mature, you can't handle that. And you can't help someone go through that. So the person has to be spiritually mature. And that's more what's in mind here. Remember, I, I told you earlier, a lot of people, uh, as we started this series, people talk about Timothy and they think he's a 20-year-old. He's not a 20-year-old. He was probably 35 or 40 years old at this time. Okay? He was not a little teenage kid here in this letter. So stop seeing Timothy as a teenager. He was not a teenager. He was a man. He was considered a young man by their standards, but he was a man. Okay? And so someone of spiritual maturity, okay? <clears throat> the mature person is, is someone who's weathered the storms of life to some degree, and they're still standing. They still have their faith in Jesus Christ, right? They, they've borne spiritual fruit through that. They've overcome adversity. They've been tested and tried. And through those things, they've learned to trust God. And see that God is faithful. They learn to depend on God. These things are so important for those who are going to lead in the church of Jesus Christ. If you only knew a small percentage of the things Betsy and I have walked through in the leadership of this church over the past decade, it would curl your toes. Because we're dealing with people. And people sin. Okay? But if we weren't spiritually mature and, and, and know how to deal with it and how to come to the Lord with these things, right? We would, I'd have been working at Walmart. I'd make a great Walmart door greeter. I think I'm pretty friendly, you know? <laughs> you know? Or be a barista or something like that. It's a lot easier. <laughs> All right. This is why... We are not hasty in appointing elders, okay? I can tell you there's, you know, I'm going to talk about someone here at the end of this service, but it'll only be the fourth person we've appointed as elder in this church other than me in the time of our existence. And there are men that I've thought, hmm, maybe. Maybe these are someone God is raising up in our midst. And thank God in his good grace, he exposes who they are and what they are. Because they're not qualified. But if I move quickly, what a tragedy that would be. Okay? So it's important we don't do those things, right? There has to be a lengthy period of time that we can observe how someone handles the various situations and difficulties of life. Okay? Um, so that's why Paul says, don't appoint a recent convert. It's not going to work. You don't have any time to observe that. Because they, he says here, can become puffed up with pride. That word means like being blown up with hot air or like a cloud. 
They get puffed up. You ever serve with a really puffed up prideful leader? I have. That ain't fun. <laughs> that ain't fun. And there's the propensity for a younger person who's put in a position of authority uh, to get a big head, right? We don't want to do that, right? Again, Paul doesn't give a specific age here, right? And that's why we need wisdom before appointing someone who others might consider young, but the person is actually spiritually mature, right? And that's the job of the elders together with the church to look at these qualifications and see how the individual matches up to them. All right, and here now is the only attribute that is part of the duty of an elder, and that is able to teach. Able to teach. They've got to be able to teach. Now, not every elder is going to have pulpit preaching ministry, okay? In a smaller church like ours, probably will. Larger churches, right, they're more delineated responsibilities and tasks. An elder, elder might specialize in certain areas, but every elder needs to be able to teach, right? Not only know the word of God themselves, which they should. They should be lovers of God's word, students of God's word. They should know it for themselves. They should know how to communicate it. And they should also know how to teach others. They know how to apply it themselves. And they can teach others how to apply the word of God themselves. Right? And that ability to teach also goes hand in hand with the exhortation of the qualification he gives in Titus's list. Titus 1.9, he writes, the elder overseer must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he's got to be able to communicate and teach it, right? Teach sound doctrine, hold it himself and teach it. And he also needs to refute and rebuke and correct and defend the faith against false teachers and how they pervert and twist the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's the only duty that's mentioned in this particular uh, list of qualifications here. But that one is self-explanatory. All right, relation to self, number two, relation to self. These particular qualifications I'm going to put under self-mastery or self-leadership. The first there is he says that uh, the overseer must be sober-minded, sober-minded. Okay, that the implication of that needs to be, means that they need to be clear-headed, Their thought life is clear. They're able to think soberly about moral issues and spiritual issues. That means they're not always joking around. The person who's always joking around and you can never have a serious conversation with them is not qualified for leadership. That's not being clear-headed. There's moments to joke around. There's moments, you know, to cut up. I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, pretty well-developed and matured in my life. But that's not for all the time, okay? I I have to be clear-headed and clear-minded, you know, to deal with situations, to be able to counsel people, exhort people, encourage people, uh, and do what is required of me as as a pastor, right? Also needs to be self-controlled, okay? To be self-controlled means you do not always act according to your carnal or, or sinful impulses and urges. You don't give in to them, okay? Because that is... A key thing here. You're not mastered by your passions. Titus 1.8, he calls it disciplined. Self-controlled and also disciplined. Okay? The overseer must be able to curb their desires and impulses that might cause them to not be in control of themselves. Or to lose control. That could be emotionally. That could be physically. 
okay? Self-controlled, not a drunkard. Now, Scripture, we know, warns against drunkenness. It doesn't tell us not to drink. I promise you, here's why he had to tell them not to be a drunkard. Because people were getting drunk in the church because they'd come early for the Lord's Supper and they'd imbibe in too much wine. Okay? Paul's got to rebuke the church at Corinth for this very manner. It's like you can't even control yourself. You got to go in there and you keep tipping that bottle. And, and by the time we start the service, you're already wasted. Okay? It's not a good look. All right? They didn't, they didn't have Welch's grape juice. Okay? <laughs> Their stuff was the real deal. Okay? So, so if you're intoxicated, though, you can't have self-control. If you're intoxicated, if you're drunk, you're not going to be sober-minded, right? You're not going to be clear-headed. You're not thinking clearly, right? The reality is if you love drink too much, you should not be an elder because that means you have addictive tendencies. You are self-medicating. You're looking towards alcohol to provide some therapeutic relief or thing in your life that you should be coming to Christ with, okay? And it's a dangerous thing to have someone in leadership, in spiritual oversight over the flock of God who has addictive tendencies and is given and prone to drunkenness, okay? Uh, That makes one unfit for eldership, okay? Not a lover of money, okay? This is about the attitude of the elder's heart as concerning money, Think about how Paul closes his letter out. One of the final instructions he gives here is, right, one of the, the famous things that is always misquoted. People say, oh, money is the root of all evil. No, it's not money. It's what? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, he writes uh, in chapter 6, okay? And, and to Titus, in his instructions for overseers, says that they must not be greedy for gain, right, for profit, now, what's he saying? That the, the pastor, the elder overseer shouldn't be paid? Nope. Because at the end of this letter, he's making the claim here that elders who teach are going to be supported financially. The problem is that that elder should not be looking, right, to, to make gain, right, or become wealthy from this functional role here of giving oversight to the church. It's not to be seen as a means to get rich. You don't have to worry about that here. But we know it's a problem in a lot of places, don't we? Okay? They cannot love money. Number one, that could be an issue of their own heart. Okay? They love money too much. They want a lot of it. Number two, they can begin to show partiality to those who are the big givers in the church or the more influential and successful people in the church. So partiality is shown to them uh, and we're not to do that. Okay? Paul talks about this often in his letters. He talks about how he works hard with his own hands. In Acts 20, he, he, he mentions that once again. He goes, you know how I was among you, right? I didn't want to be a financial burden. I worked hard with my own hands like to be an example to you. I wasn't in it for the money. I wasn't looking to get rich off of you. In other letters he writes, look, I could have made a claim on you as an apostle for you to support me, but I chose not to do that. I worked at my trade, and I took care of my own needs, and I took care of the the needs of of my ministry team so as not to be a financial burden on you or for you to think that I was trying to get one over on you. This is an important and big 
deal. In Acts 20, 33, he writes, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Now, Paul is not saying that pastors should be paid like a pauper. Some churches do that. I think that's sinful. To keep a pastor poor and begging is a, is, is a shame. It's a shame, all right? That's not what he's saying here. But, but this is a big problem in the American church, in the Western church at large. Just recently, the report was leaked and came out of how much a very well-known and popular megachurch, I'll name it because I don't care, Hillsong, uh, how much they paid other celebrity pastors to do a one-of appearance at their conferences. They paid them six figures to speak for 40 minutes in this little racket and game where they'd invite each other back and forth so they can avoid paying taxes. It's a, it's a, it's a whole scheme. It's a whole scheme. How many pastors demand exorbitant salaries because they want a, a rich lifestyles of the rich and famous? You know, this is sinful. This is wrong. The elder must not love money. Because it's, money is a corrupting influence. If your heart has it right, it will jack you up. Okay? This, is, this is a big deal and it's important. If you love money, you can't be an elder. To this I'm going to add, an elder must be generous as well. Generosity has to be modeled by the elder in the church. If someone's not faithful in their giving, if someone's not faithful with their time and resources, if someone's not faithful with the, the things that God has called them to steward, they're not going to do a good job at discharging the duties of an elder. Okay? An elder has to be generous. Okay? You cannot be an elder if you have money problems. If you have problems with being generous, it will not lead to faithful ministry in the church. I know, high bar, high standard. But it matters, okay, because of what one is dealing with. How can you help someone financially, like if all you're thinking about is your own money trouble? How can you administer faithfully the finances of the church, right, if you're just like, ah, uh, you know, all the time living paycheck to paycheck, okay? It's not, a, it's not a good thing, okay? So it's a big deal, this area here. Let's talk about the third category, relation to family, the husband of one wife. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? Literally, it means a one-woman man. And, and many kind of debate back and forth. What did Paul mean by this? Is he saying that an elder has to be married, so a single person can never be an elder? Or is he saying someone who's been divorced previously cannot be an elder? Or is he just making an argument against polygamy? It's not good for the elder to have six wives, you know? No, he's not really talking about those things. What's the heart of the matter? What's the point? The point has to do with fidelity. Okay? It's about faithfulness here. An elder is to be faithful to his spouse. One woman man means he has eyes only for his spouse. There's that aspect of sexual purity. Okay? And fidelity to the, uh, to the marital covenant. Because if he's going to be faithful to his wife, then he can be trusted to be faithful with God's people. The bride of Jesus Christ, okay? So, that's, it's a big deal here. You know, I don't think he's prohibiting a single man from being an elder. But I would caution against it, and here's why. You know, when you think about what, what makes someone more suitable to understanding the dynamic of the church being the household of God. 
is, is someone who under, has their own family, okay? And a single young man doesn't quite understand those dynamics. It would be very challenging for a single young man to give marital counseling, you know, or to, to walk a family through discipline issues with their children when they've not had any experience in that area themselves. So I'm not saying that would ever would disqualify a person completely, but I think wisdom tells us that it's probably not going to be a single young man. So he may have been also addressing that as well. And this, to reinforce that, is the other qualification he mentions here in relation to the family. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, if someone's home is in chaos and disorder, okay, if they can't manage the home front, which is the little church, how can they manage God's church? That's the, Paul, the, the, the point that Paul is making here. The home, which is a little church, that the man is supposed to lead and shepherd and pastor and manage and administrate and supervise and direct, if that is in disorder, how can they be elder, oversee God's house, God's flock? Okay? If you fail there, you're disqualified from leading in God's household. Okay? Every man is a pastor in his own home, and his family is the little flock. Okay? Every man is called to shepherd his family and give oversight to those under his authority, his wife and his children. Okay? But if your own wife and your own children are not submissive to you, they don't respect you, then how will the church submit to your leadership? How can you expect the church to submit, and how can you expect them to respect you? Okay? The submission of children, he says here, is to be with all dignity. Does that mean a child can never disobey? No, we know that's, that's not a reality. They're going to, right? Uh, it's, not, it's not what he means here. Because this is that S word again, right? We, we came up with that word back when we were looking in the previous chapter. Here it was brought up again in the context of the home, specifically, though, in relation to the children, right? But he says they're to be submissive with all dignity, right? That tells me that the man is not to be a tyrant in his home. A man who has to demand submission from their child is not receiving submission with all dignity and respect. Okay? He, has to be, he has to bully, intimidate, you know, and impose fear in order to get submission in the home. That man's not qualified for leadership. It should not be there. A child should not see their father as a tyrant in the home, but as a loving and caring father, because that is what the elder, in essence, is to be to the flock of God, to the church of Jesus Christ, a loving and caring spiritual father and spiritual leader, okay? So while a child is under the father's accountability and responsibility, they're to be orderly and obedient and submissive. And also, uh, as Titus 1.6 says that they also must be believers. They must confess the truth, okay? That's a big deal. While they're under one's authority and responsibility, right? You should be able to look at the child, the children of a prospective elder and go, okay, I can see something about how he's managing his household, okay? Going to look at the family, observe the spouse. How does she treat him, right? And, and how are the kids respond? And you should be able to tell something about how they're leading, how they are managing in the home. A man who can't control his own children, who defy him at every turn, you know, has no place shepherding the people of God, right? How many of you have known PKs who are a terror? 
like defiant and rebellious and little demons. But I don't fault them for their father being a pastor. He needs to step down and take care of the home front. Okay? And the reality is men must take care of the home front before they have any ideas about working in and on the church. Because that's the microcosm of the macrocosm. It's the little church and there's God's church. Okay? Take care of the home church. You can manage that well. Then you've proven that you qualify to manage God's household. Okay? The people of God. More to say on that. We'll leave it there. Okay. Relation to others. This is the last section here. Last category. It says it must be respectable. Okay? What does that mean? Respectable. Well, it means he's well-behaved and well-ordered. His life is well-ordered, and people take notice of that. They respect him because there's some congruency between their inward life and the outward expression and manifestation of, of their profession of faith. And, and he's respected in three fronts. In the home, because he's managing it well, and his children are submissive with all dignity, right? His wife is submissive to his authority and is, and is flourishing under his, his leadership, he is then also respected in the church, and he's to be respected by outsiders, the world. His co-workers, relatives, you know, uh, friendship pool, neighbors, those outside of the church. He must be hospitable, right? That word literally means love for strangers. In that time, you know, you, you know the stories is, is there were no hotels everywhere, Okay. It wasn't the Marriott and these other hotels. Right? When people were traveling from one place to another, people stayed in other people's homes. Right? And, and you think about the hospitality of the Christian community, the elders would be opening their homes to people who would travel from other areas. Think of where Paul stayed. Paul stayed in people's homes. Who opened his homes to him? Well, Christians. But by and large, probably those who led in the particular churches that he was ministering and, and visiting here, right? So an elder's home is, is to be open. People should feel welcome there. The elder's home should be warm and welcoming. The elder himself should be welcoming, warm, and friendly. Should not be standoffish. Should, should never have an attitude like he's unapproachable, Okay? You know, an elder uh, whose home is off limits and doesn't allow people into their most intimate and private of spaces, which is their home, is not someone who can carry out the function of elder properly. He must be hospitable, okay? Not violent. (laughs) You should go without saying, right? Uh, A pastor should not be throat-punching everyone who disagrees with them, okay? (laughs) Body-slamming and... Uh, you've heard stories of fights breaking out, you know, in the pastor's office and stuff like that, right? Uh, and again, he says, must not be violent, right? So this is a negative command, not a positive one. He's not saying be violent. He's saying be, not, not be violent, right? It means he can't be quick-tempered. Can't have a short fuse that's lit by every little disagreement or every little critique or every little comment someone's making. They just kind of lose it. They lose their marbles. They go nuts. They explode in a fit of rage. Some can get physical. And I served on staff with one of the pastors who's just, he was like this. I mean, he was quarrelsome, contentious. I mean, everything that other people did bothered him all the time. And he was always making comments. Oh, if I could punch him. I was like, go ahead. 
See what happens, man. <laughs> Go ahead. No, God's man, God's elder should not be like that. Should not be short-tempered. Should be slow to anger. Should have a long wick that's not easily ignited. Certainly not resort to violence, shouting, you know, losing their head when dealing with situations. People are going to challenge you in ministry. People are going to mess with you in ways that in the flesh, yes, you want to punch them in the face. If the scripture allowed me to, I want to do that as well. Definitely put them in a submission hold or something. But that should not be part of our character. Should not be our first instinct is to react in a in in, in a violent or or or, or in, in in a rage filled way towards something that someone does to us. That's a that's a sign of immaturity. Certainly not maturity. Okay. And then goes hand with hand. It should not be quarrelsome. Right. Read about the false teachers. We already looked at this in chapter one. The false teachers were what. They were contentious. They were quarrelsome. They were sowing division and discord, right? They were prone to controversies. Elders should not be people who always want to pick a fight, want to quarrel and quibble about every dumb little thing that's out there. You don't have time for that. You don't have time to get into foolish controversies, right? That breeds discord and contention and quarrels, and we're not to be that. Here's what we should be, he says. He must be gentle. Must be gentle. Now, it's not going to surprise you when we go through this qualification list, how much of it mirrors the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, right? Of which we know self-control is of the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, fruit of the Spirit. Right? That should be maturing in the life of the person who aspires to the office of of overseer of overseer right right there has to be a humility that doesn't allow this person to get drawn into quarrels fights and petty things drawn into fruitless arguments and controversies okay gentleness is the style of the elder okay gentleness is the style jesus said that he's gentle and lowly in heart the elder is to model Jesus in gentleness. Why? Who's he dealing with? He's dealing with the people of God. No elder has the right to be domineering, bullying, abusive, and harsh towards the people of God. That's something you'll never experience here by... Because I fear the Lord, number one, and I'm reminded frequently of who you belong to. You belong to Christ. He purchased you by His own blood. I need to treat you as Christ treats me. I need to treat you as Christ treats you. He treats you with gentleness. A bruised reed He will not crush. A smoking flax will He not sniff out, snuff out. He's not crushing. He's dom- not domineering. He's not bullying with his people. I have no right to be that with his people. To be gentle, right? This, what it says here, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, the first part. 
The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, even with his opponents. Because the presumption here is that those opponents are actually people in the church. How do you treat them? You treat them with gentleness and be kind to everyone. Does that mean the elder is supposed to be a doormat, a pushover? Nope. Don't mistake that. Gentleness for, for, for just being a pushover. Because the elder has to protect the flock of God. That means sometimes the wolves get shot. That means that those who cause these things and divisions in the church, if they don't repent, guess what happens? They need to be put out. But that's not the default position, right? The default position is gentleness and treating people with kindness because of who they belong to. Too many pastors are tyrants and bullies. They beat up the sheep. That's a dangerous thing to do. You beat up the the, the sheep, you're going to deal with the chief shepherd. I don't want to be in that position, right? He must be well thought of by outsiders. What does that mean? He must bear good witness for Christ among the unbelieving world. You're out in the world. You're shopping. You're working. You're dealing with neighbors. You're dealing with unsafe people around you. What kind of testimony does an individual have with outsiders? Must have a good reputation. That means that person should strive to win the respect of others even those who disagree with them. And that good reputation, that good witness is to be guarded. Why? So they don't fall into disgrace. So they don't fall into a trap or a snare of the devil. And this is the second time there at the end where Paul references the devil. And, it, and it's a, a reminder that the devil works to, to discredit ministers of the gospel in order to bring reproach on the gospel. He works to set snares and traps to, 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 to lead ministers of the gospel to sin, to fall, right? To bring shame and disgrace so the world can go, aha, look, hypocrite. Ah, they're all the same. Look at them. How many ministers? We all get lumped into these fools that are out there, right? They're the ones that are, have the big platforms and are doing the foolish things. Well, they think every minister is like that. Well, don't prove them right. Okay, watch your life and minister. That's why Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Guard yourself. Watch yourselves and watch the flock of God so you don't fall into disgrace and to the snare of the devil. So I want to encourage you, be praying for me. Pray for pastors. Pray for elders. Like the spiritual warfare is real. It's intense. Sometimes more than others. Why? Because we have an enemy who would love nothing but to discredit ministers so that the sheep are scattered and the church falls apart and the gospel is reproached and we don't want that. So why all of these character qualifications? As I said earlier, it's because the character is the job description. What is an elder if not someone who models Christ to the people of God? That's why it's a high bar. It's, it's, it's a high bar. And that person needs to have consistency of character in all arenas of life. In the home, in the church, and in the world. A lot of people are really nice at church. 
I mean, they put on an incredible spiritual front, but not outside the church. At home, they don't have a good testimony. At home, they're not respected. So how many churchgoers who talk a big game, but I bet if we go talk to their coworkers, they tell us a different story of what they're like. No one likes to be around them. They're slackers. They don't work hard. They gossip. They backbite. Not you. Just people who are listening on YouTube or not here today because they knew I was going to talk about them. We've got to be the same no matter where we are. But the person who's to be the overseer is modeling Christ and needs to be above reproach in all of these areas. I don't want anyone to walk away from this room today thinking, again, that these things are only for people who want to be an elder. Each of these qualifications should be formed uh, in all of us as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And men, I want to call you to this noble task. I, I, I know not everyone's going to be called by the Spirit to do this, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't set your heart on this task. To be part of what it means to, to give spiritual oversight to the church and to help the church of Jesus Christ be directed and nurtured, protected and grow. Set your heart on these, meeting these qualifications uh, for this ministry to serve your church. We need you men. I, I said it in the past, you know, this is the, the problem that for the most part, and I thank God this isn't really the issue here. I'm just, in generality, I'm talking about the church. Who serves in the church? Women. When we ask for volunteers, who are the first to, to, to raise their hand? Women. Okay? It should not be that way. It should not be that way. Man, we've been called to this noble task. And we should strive to meet these qualifications for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, these qualifications can seem overwhelming because they are, right? They truly are. And no one can fulfill these qualifications perfectly. There's not a single man. As much as we strive and as much as we work, we fall short in a lot of areas. We're imperfect But thankfully, there is one who has fulfilled all of these roles perfectly, right? And he's the one who's the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church, not the pope, not the bishops, not the pastors, not the elders. He is the head of his church. It is Christ's church. And because it's Christ's church that he obtained with his own blood, that he founded, he preserves his church because it belongs to him. And he said, I will build my church. And because there are human leaders that he has designated to give spiritual oversight, we know that these human leaders are going to be weak and they're going to fall short because they aren't perfect like their perfect head of the church. So how can we serve in this capacity? By looking to the perfect servant. The suffering servant who shed his own blood to redeem his bride, the church. Who died for her and for her officers that their sins would be forgiven. 
And wherever we are weak, wherever we fall short, whatever imperfection we have, we can avail ourselves of the grace of our Lord that He extends to us in Christ Jesus. And His grace is sufficient. His grace is more than enough for us, brothers and sisters, wherever we fall short. Peter calls Christ, listen, the chief shepherd, the chief pastor, and chief overseer, chief bishop of our souls. He is the bishop over all his church. And he fulfills all of these offices perfectly and completely. And he's designed his church to have these offices. And he gives the grace to any man who faithfully heeds the trustworthy saying, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. May the Lord continue to raise up faithful and qualified men here at Scent Church for his glory.